The, the hymn of the month is Speak, O Lord, Your Servant Listens, and it's a good old Lutheran hymn. Um, this is one of the hymns that uh, Lutheran, it's not one that Lutherans adopted later on, but it's one that Lutherans wrote um, back in Germany, back in the, I think it's 17th century, if I remember right. I don't have the information on it at the bottom of this page. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up in a second here. Um, but it's a good hymn for this month. Uh, this this month is mostly pre-Lent in our church season, uh, or the Jesmatide. So there's there's an article about that in the Messenger if you want to know more about this season of the church year. But the three Sundays in pre-Lent. Um, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima, which respectively means 70, 60, and 50. Um, and then when we get to Lent, that'll be 40 days from Easter. So we're just, we're, we're beginning our countdown to Easter, essentially. Um, the, those three Sundays, the, the themes, or the, the overarching themes of each Sunday are uh, grace alone, scripture alone, and faith alone, uh, respectively. So... Today is kind of the Grace Alone Sunday, um, but the, when we sing the hymn, you'll see that there are a number of those themes present in this in this hymn, um, as it is a Lutheran hymn, and those are the the three solas of the Reformation, or the th- the three alones of the Reformation: Grace Alone, Scripture Alone, Faith Alone. So, um, anyhow, I think everyone should know this tune. Am I right on that, Donna? Yeah, this is this is a hymn that has been sung a lot at Beautiful Savior. So um, I'll uh, I'll hum it, you know, right before we start singing it. But but I'm pretty sure we know it pretty well. So uh, we'll sing the whole thing. I, I, it's not that long. It's four stanzas. So um, and it's a pretty uh, upbeat tune, if you will. Uh, it's it's not it's not a boring, uh, you know funeral dirge type tune it's a it's a good good upbeat tune so all right let's uh begin then with at home prayer and i gotta get my at home prayer set up here but if everyone's got their bulletin and their hymn of the month we'll we'll begin with that okay, good. just in time all right In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll go over to speak, O Lord, your servant listens. Uh, So the tune is like this. Everyone know that? Uh, it's familiar to me. Okay. 
We'll just we're just gonna go for it. You'll know it by the end of the month. Yeah. If you don't already. Speak, O Lord, your servant listens. Let your word to me come near. Newborn life and spirit give me. Let each promise still my fear. Destred power, its inward strife. Wars against your word of life. Fill me, Lord, with love's strong fervor that I cling to you forever. Oh, what blessing to be near you and to listen to your voice. Let me ever love and hear you. Let your word be now my choice. Many hardened sinners, Lord, flee in terror at your word. But to all who feel sense burden, you give words of peace and pardon. Lord, your words are waters living. When my thirsting spirit pleads, Lord, your words are bread life-giving. On your words my spirit feeds. Lord, your words will be my light through death's cold and dreary night. Yes, they are my sword prevailing and my cup of joy unfailing. As I pray, dear Jesus, hear me. Let your words in me take root. May your spirit ever be near me, that I bear abundant fruit. May I daily sing your praise, from my heart glad anthems raise, till my highest praise is given. In the endless joy of heaven. All right, we'll continue with the uh, catechism memory work. What is the second commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name. But call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. And the uh, Bible memory work. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Isaiah 12:4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the world and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. All right, so we'll, uh, oh, unless, did you want to do the, stay here for the hymn? Sorry, I forgot. Okay. We were considering having the kids stay here to learn about the hymn, but we'll do that another time. Um, got a plan for this. All right, so for the hymn, uh, like I said, I was going to pull this up too and see, I can give you the dates on it and the author and everything. I believe it was written by a uh, a woman. 589, yeah. Yeah, 589. Uh, yeah, Anna Sophia von Hessen Darmstadt. Um, That's a good German name. Yeah, and I was I was right, 17th century, uh, 16. She was uh, she lived from 1638 to 1683, so some point in that time period. Probably not when she was like three years old, so probably in the uh, 1650s, 60s, 70s, somewhere in there. Mid-17th mid century, uh, she wrote this hymn. I was going to see, um, I believe she wrote more than that. Composers, here we go. Anna Sophia von Hessen. Is, is it under von or under Hessen? Yeah. Oh, that's a, the. There we go. Um. Um. I don't want to spend too much time doing this. Yeah, I'll have to. Um, I'll have to look it up later. I'm not seeing it right now. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so it's a very early Lutheran hymn, um, and it's from a Lutheran old German tune, too. You, the name of the tune is, uh, Verde Munter, uh, so obviously a very German, uh, tune, and it was written, the tune was written by Johann Schaff, so... Um, in the uh, also in the 17th century, so um, that that probably means that these 
that this tune and this hymn have gone together for a um, since its existence. Um, it's translated in the uh, 19th century um, by a guy named George Reig. Anyway, I always find that stuff interesting. Um, you learn a lot about hymns if. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we don't have the the hymnals, you know, in the chairs or whatever. But um, as long as I've been singing Lutheran hymns, um, I've always kind of glanced at the bottom of the page and read that stuff, and then you just kind of like learn a little bit about how, how hymns work. Anyway, um, so this is a hymn primarily about obviously the Word of God. Right, the uh, speak, O Lord, your servant listens. What are we listening to? Uh, his word, um, and let your word to me come near. And then um, you're gonna see references to the word over and over, over again. Um, you know, Lord, your words are waters living. Lord, your words are breath, bread life giving. That's uh, Lord, your word. That's all the third stanza. Lord, your words will be my light through death's cold and dreary night. Um, so. This is, I think we'll sing this next week, which is the scripture alone Sunday, obviously the most fitting. Uh, but you can also see how the, the themes of grace alone and uh, faith alone um, play into this, right? So uh, with the first stanza, um, which we'll, we'll kind of look at today, let your word to me come near, newborn life and spirit give me. Let each promise still my fear, death's dread power, its inward strife, wars against your word of life. Fill me, Lord, with love strong forever that I cling to you forever. So this is about God's grace, his favor coming to us right through his word, that he's going to um, protect us. He's going to guide us. He's going to give us life um, through his word. And that's all according to his His grace or his favor toward us. Um, and... So it's a really beautiful hymn. I want to point out two things about it just to start us with, and then we'll kind of consider different lines and, and things in it um, from from then. So the first is uh, I love the biblical does – anyone, does anyone catch the biblical reference here in the title of the hymn? Does anyone know where speak, O Lord, your servant listens? It's in the Bible. So this is a – anyone know where that's from? Okay, so it's from 1 Samuel. Oh, what? Donna oh, Donna knows. Uh, yeah, from 1 Samuel. So it's when uh, Samuel is um, being called by the Lord uh, for service in his church. And uh, anyone remember the story? Right, so Steve knows the story. David knows the story. Okay. So the Lord's calling Samuel, 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 right? And... Uh, he thinks Eli is calling him. And so he goes to Eli and he's like, yeah, what, what do you want? And um, Eli's like, I didn't call you. And then Eli figures out after about three times of this that um, the Lord's calling him. And, and he says, whenever you uh, next time you hear the Lord call you, um, say, speak, O Lord, your servant listens. And so that's what he does. And that's how Samuel is called. Right. So um, this is actually that that leads me to the next thing. Um which is kind of a, a beautiful reference, right? In the that um, we're we're putting those words of Samuel in our mouths as the Lord's servants. That um, we want to listen to His word, right? We want to we want to hear God when He comes to us in His word. 
And so, of course, in that broader sense, it applies to everyone, all, to all Christians. Um, what What is interesting about this, though, I mean, if you think about the ministry of Samuel um, as, as a, and, and Eli, you know, as, as priests of the Lord, is that this hymn is also traditionally sung uh, as an ordination hymn. So I don't think we sang it at my ordination, to my memory. Um, but uh, I do love thinking about this hymn as a hymn, like I said, that does apply to all Christians, but um, specifically how this applies to, to pastors in his church, right? That um, the, the Lord's servants in his church, the, as the, the pastors in the church, that is, um, are specifically called uh, to be extra attentive to God's word, to what it says for them to do, uh, to cling to it, um, to uh, always make his word the center of their ministry, right? Um, and uh, I, I do like thinking about, especially that, that first line, um, speak, O Lord, your servant listens, as a way in which men come into the ministry, right? Um, so I, had a, I went to a number of my friends' ordinations before I was ordained, but that same, like, summer um, after we all graduated, you know, and a lot of them had this hymn, and I just always thought that was, like, uh, I for whatever reason, I chose other hymns I like more, I guess, but I always thought that was such a great um, way to... To sing, to sing the ordinand, um, that's what the person who's being ordained is called in the service of ordination, an ordinand, um, in case you need to know that. Uh, I always thought that was a great way to sing the ordinand into, into the ministry. Speak, O Lord, your servant listens. So, um, Anyway, that's just some things to consider about it. But yeah, I think those. this is just such a good Lutheran hymn in the sense of its focus on grace alone, scripture alone, and faith alone. And um, just letting God's word be the center of our life and, our, and, and everything that we do. All right. For the uh, catechism memory work today on the second commandment, any questions on the hymn? Thoughts? Concerns? Comments? <laughs> yes, Dave. Well, again, we have to give a lot of credit to the people that translated <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him translating is—it's um, different than normal translating. In that, I mean, with normal translating, is there okay? Oh, okay. Um, good, great. So with normal translating. Like you can do a much more literal translation, um, and it, you know, obviously you don't want translations to be clunky. You want them to be readable, and translating in itself is hard enough. Uh, which I'm just gonna. This applies to biblical translations, kind of off topic, but um, let me just point this out, just for the sake of. Um, this is just good to know that the reason translating is so hard. I think if, if you've never learned another language before, who, who has learned other languages before? Okay, so about half of you. Okay, um, if, you, if you've learned another language before, you know this. If, 
intuitively if you have it, then you might not, that words are not, um, between languages are not like a one-to-one ratio, right? Um, you can't, that, that just simply doesn't work. So I just need to think of a quick example here. Okay, marker, right? So an English marker, um, it might have a number of different definitions, right? So it might, it might be, you know, uh, a writing utensil, right? Uh, a road marker, right? What, you know, whatever, um, uh, an identification, right? Type of thing, right? So you, you could have a whole num- number of definitions for the word marker. Well, there's not um, – when you go to translate that into another language, there's not one word. So let's just uh, – does anyone know an, an, another language for mark for something that would be a marker? Does anyone know? I don't. Um, yeah. Right. French word for pen or something. You might use pen. Okay. Um, I don't know. Well, so, so say you have uh, – uh, you know – a another language that you're translating um, the word marker into and you want to convey um, you know one you want to convey that you're talking about a road marker well say um, let's just say the word in the other language is X okay that's obviously not the word but let's just say the word in another language is X okay well X word in another language say it's Spanish or something might have that word might also have three or four different definitions, but for whatever reason, it might be talking about those definitions might be one, you know, one might be a writing utensil, right? But the other, this word could mean like maybe it's like a dessert or something, right? That this is also the name for some dessert in this other language, in this other culture. The Spanish, a uh, road marker is Marcado de okay. Terra. Okay, Marcado. Yeah, like three words. Yeah. And we're gonna pretend. Marker of the road. We're gonna pretend like Marcado. Oh, look, the is pen. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. So Marcado uh, in Spanish is a road marker, but it's not a writing utensil, right? Right. And then, and maybe it's a dessert, and then maybe um, it's. Uh, maybe the other thing Marcado means is a podium. Okay, like. It could mean any, you know, whatever. This is all made up. But right. the, you get the idea, right, that you can't – it's not a one-to-one ratio. So you have – because uh, we call this, if, in case you're really interested. Um, they got several words for road marker. There you go. In case you're really interested, we call this uh, semantic, which is like the study of words basically. Semantic range. Um, and so that you have a range of definitions or a range that a word can mean, right? And uh, when you go to translate, you have to kind of find the best word for the, the word that you're using. And it, it gets even more complicated than this than, because you're not always talking about individual words, right? You're, you're really talking about a thought or a, an idea, right, which might need to be conveyed in multiple words. So especially when you get into things like um, colloquialisms or, or metaphors. Um, so to give you a biblical example, the one for some reason that I always use when I'm explaining this is in Hebrew, um, for someone to become very angry, uh, they, the way that they express that 
most often in Hebrew, is that their nose burned. That yeah, sounds really weird to an English speaker, right? That your nose was that their nose burned. Um, most English translations in the Bible don't translate that literally, right? They don't just say his God's nose burned, although the Hebrew says that, um, because that's a colloquialism for anger um, or wrath, and you can kind of see how that like makes sense when you think about the image, but it still doesn't translate well, and so. Um, translating is just this really difficult task because you can't just say um, – so, so so technology has gotten a little bit better at this, but even something like Google Translate, you know, it doesn't always do that well. Um, it's It sounds clunky because you can't just kind of plug it into a computer and make it sound good. Um, you have to think through – a human has to think through the thoughts and the ideas being conveyed. And then make that sound smooth and natural in the language you're translating to. Um, that said, the other side of that is that you don't want it to become too loose of a translation, right? Because you want to be faithful to the original translation. And so that's the, the struggle in, in um, biblical translation is this is God's word we're dealing with, so we want to be faithful to the original language. But we also need it to be understandable in the target language. So, what's that? Yeah, tra- well, transliteration is a uh, right. Transliteration is actually a term means something a little different. It means when you take a word and just make it a new word in the target language. So, an example of that would be amen. Amen is a Hebrew word. Transliterated into Greek, Amen. Transliterated into English, Amen. Um, or in the South, Amen. Which I, you know, I grew up saying Amen, and then I got ruined in the Midwest, and then I say Amen, and I can't, I can't stop. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, I like Amen though. It's like, you know, tell me to me, but. Um, it sounds more. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. We should. You should uh, call me on it. We should start doing it. Okay. Um, but that that word is originally a Hebrew word, and then it never. Then, I mean, we uh, we just use it, and it becomes this word that then we know what it means. So that's transliteration or alleluia um, is Hebrew word transliterated into Latin, transliterated into English. Um, that's why sometimes it's hallelujah and sometimes it's alleluia. Um, the hallelujah is Hebrew, the alleluia is Latin. So anyway, uh, when it comes to hymn translation, this gets all even more complicated because you also have to translate it faithfully. You have to translate it smoothly and you have to translate it into a rhyme scheme. So that it really is a, uh, Probably a very difficult task, I imagine. I've never tried to do it, but um, I was looking. My fourth year seminary I was going to translate some Latin hymns. I never got around to it, but um, yeah, it is a. I imagine it's a very difficult task, and um, to to deal with all the the whole semantic range thing, 
being faithful to the text and and um, putting in the rhyme scheme. But uh, somehow it does produce really good hymns, right? Um, I think God blesses faithful people with with the, this faithful with this ability and um, these faithful hymns, and He preserves them for uh, our church. And I think that's just fantastic. So, um, yeah, I don't know uh, what my ministry would look like without these good German hymns, but I mean, it's they're they're really good. So, nothing. And and there's also something to be said for hymns that are written in your native language, right? Like the some of the English hymns are just fantastic. Um, I actually put as the something extra in the messenger this month. I I don't know if who's all read it yet, but. I put an old English hymn in the something extra. It's not. It's not in our hymnal. It's a John Bunyan hymn, um, taken out of Pilgrim's Progress. But uh, that's just. I mean, I love it. Like it's, um, as you know, in a native English speaker, like there's uh, what I would call blood memory there, where there's something like deep inside me that just like resonates with with that kind of hymn. So uh, anyway. All right, that's the hymn. Uh, what were we going to talk about? Second commandment, yes. Any other comments on the hymn? It's good to think about translation, though, because it, it, it applies not just to hymns, but also to how we read the Bible um, and what translation we're going to use when we read the Bible. So, All right. Uh, yes, the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse swear. You satanic arts lie or deceive by his name, but call upon him in every trouble, pray praise, and give thanks. Okay, so there's a lot to this commandment. In fact, I think um, this commandment in some ways has – deals with some of the most con, like contemporary – or some, maybe not contemporary, but some of the most common questions that come up in uh, – the Christian church today. So I'm going to give you the option. Do you want me to talk about cursing and swearing, or do you want me to talk about satanic arts? Which do you want me to talk about? Satanic arts. Satanic arts. Okay. We'll talk about satanic arts. So um, I just talked about this in adult catechesis the other week, that the the second commandment when it comes to this this idea of using satanic arts – so the root of this and how it relates to God using God's name is that if you go back you know, into the Old Testament and you read about witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, these kinds of things, what are they doing? They're calling on false gods, right, and, and, and spirits. And they're taking things that belong properly to God, um, the – control of people's souls um, and uh, prayer right would be another thing they're taking things that properly belong to God and trying to control them th- themselves or put them in the hands of false gods and so this is to that is to break the second commandment right um, that we should not misuse the name of of the Lord, right? right. Um, because the positive aspect of not misusing the name of the Lord is calling only on the name of the Lord, right? Um, only using His name. 
right? So you'll say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his, his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted, right? It, there's only one, one God, one true God, the God of gods, okay? So um, with that then, there are things that we could say are obviously satanic arts. And I think it, it's interesting um, – in some ways, satanic – I mean definitely in, in many ways, satanic arts have never gone away, right? There's always been people practicing witchcraft. There's always been um, Satanism of some degree or another throughout the history of, of the world um, from the time of the Old Testament you know, with, with witchcraft and um, sorcery and, and, and all that kind of stuff. In our modern day um, – we have become very, I mean, kind of since the Enlightenment and then with various technological and industrial revolutions, um, society has become much less trustworthy of things that are spiritual in general, right? So you – for I think for a, a long time you heard less about satanic arts going on. Now, like in the in the um, 80s, there was the satanic panic, if you remember, uh, if you remember that. Um, but in general, like a lot of people just kind of brush off things that might be satanic arts as like, oh, like, you know, that that's just psychology, right? It's just that's just in people's heads. It's not like a real thing, like especially when it comes to things like. Um, you know, ghosts or uh, aliens or whatever, like people will say, oh, that's just like conspiracy theory. It's not, you know, that's not real. That stuff's not real. Now, as Christians, we would say, let's put the brakes on for a second because spirituality is a real thing, right? Like, I mean, spirituality is obviously real because God is real and he created us with bodies and souls. And... Uh, we have spirits, and also we learn in the Bible that witchcraft is a thing, sorcery is a thing, necromancy is a thing. All the all these are real uh, sins that people can commit, um, not not properly using the name of the Lord, their God. And we shouldn't be so quick to just write things off uh, on the basis of science or materialism uh, because they're too you know out there now the other thing we learn in the bible is that they're the what actually is the spiritual realm what's going on in the spiritual realm well what's going on in the spiritual realm is that there is god right and there is the devil and there are angels and there are demons and uh, these things and, – and Paul will even say things like the, the, uh, the cosmic powers that war against us. So I think that also includes like in some sense our sinful flesh um, and, and things of the world that are anti-Christian and, and that we cannot see, right? In the creed we confess there is the visible and the invisible. And 
so we should take threats to our spirituality um, seriously. And we also see in the Bible uh, that sometimes demons will masquerade as things that they are not. So um, like when the demons inhabit pigs, for instance, right? Um, or when uh, uh, not, not, the, not demons specifically, but when necromancers uh, call the, the souls of, of people who are dead um, to come. And yeah, Saul and the Witch of Endor, uh, the souls of people who are dead to, to come and to talk to them. Right. And these things, they, they happen. Right. They're, they're real and, and they're very dangerous. And so when it comes to, to people who experience uh, spiritual things, spiritual, let's say spiritual realities in their life today, um, we need to take those threats seriously. So I think with things like, uh, you know, ghosts, when people, when people are like haunted, places that are haunted um, and things – uh, I think very often that is real in the sense of that there are spiritual things going on in that person's life. And you can see uh, a lot of times when pastors I've talked to who have dealt with these kinds of things have said that they've dealt with things like possession, uh, spirit, um, you know, demonic possession and whatnot, uh, almost always – there's someone within that person's close circle that is involved in the occult in some way. And the this this leads people to allow demons into their to the, into their life. And so um, we shouldn't just be quick to say, oh, like that's just not haunted houses aren't real or something like that. Um, but we should take these threats seriously and uh by, by prayer and the word of God, cast these demons out. Um, so, as an example, I will give you my uh, friend, uh, Pastor Almy, the pastor at the uh, Christ Presbyterian in Olive Branch. Um, he had someone that was close to him that started experiencing very weird things in their house. And when uh, him and I talked about this, um, and he said, "Hey, you guys do house blessings, right?" He had a, he actually had experience with people being possessed, but not a house being under attack. And I said, "Yeah, we, we do house blessings, and we like looked at some Bible passages that deal with like places that have demonic problems." So like. When Jesus says, when you cast out the demon and they, they go back and they bring others with them into the in, in the waterless places. It's kind of a confusing passage, but we, we talked about these things. and I So I ended up giving him our right of house blessing, um, and he ended up sharing it with these people who had a problem in the house that they had recently moved into where they were, you know, things that you would see in like like horror movies, you know, that the lights were turning off, yeah. um, the... Like one time their their like eight year old woke up screaming in the middle of the night and they went in there and he was he had his BB gun like 
coward. Anyway, I mean, it's kind of pretty serious stuff. Like, very. Um, and he said, like, someone's someone's here, someone's to get me. They were like hearing weird noise and stuff. So I gave him the the right of the house blessing, and they did the house blessing in their house um, from the Lutheran service book agenda. And um, you know, and that these people were actually Baptists; they weren't Presbyterian. But uh, after they did the house blessing, they they prayed um, and they they spoke the word of God in that house and um, everything. All this all this stopped. The 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 I'm very confident to say the demons went away. And uh, so that's my plug for house blessings. <laughs> but. Um, and also that I just think it's hilarious that a that a Baptist ended up using the the Lutheran house blessing thing to to cast out the demons. Um, but yeah, so I just I'll just say I, I think we need to take these things seriously because they are real, and um, what else was I gonna say about that? Uh, yeah, God, God, Jesus does give us the power over over the devil and his demons and um yeah go ahead steve all yeah, i got smart things truth to the story of luther throwing an ink bottle at a demon while he was translating you know this i don't know if it's a story or just yeah uh i can't remember where that's recorded and i i don't know the veracity of that but that is a yeah an old story that um he felt the devil attacking him and he threw an ink bottle at the wall yeah. and everything so um i mean i don't really doubt it like that totally makes sense um and it's true that the devil will attack harder on people who are doing the lord's work right so like i i really don't think it's like a i think it's a spiritual thing that happens um that after every sunday most pastors i know and i experience this just are like exhausted when we get home mm. um, in a certain way that like isn't like other exhaustion. Um, it's not like I'm just tired and um, I need a nap. I normally take a nap on Sunday afternoons, but like there's this like kind of like emotional, spiritual, like physical exhaustion that that I feel after Sundays, after preaching and after administering the sacrament. And like, I don't I don't know exactly what it is, but I think it's a spiritual reality. Like. And every pastor I know basically experiences the same thing. So, um, anyway, so satanic arts are real. Oh, the, I mean, the other thing I was gonna say. So, like, just practically, um, be on the lookout, you know, for things that are involved in the occult. Like, like I, I tell, like, conf, you know, confirmation and and everything when we go over this, like. Ouija boards are not allowed, like tarot cards are not allowed. I don't care if you think it's like fun or like palm readings and stuff like that. Like on, on uh, Highway 78 going towards Holly Springs, there's like a big sign that's like palm readings, tarot cards here. It's like some <laughs> rundown house. And I always like say the Kyrie whenever I drive by. I'm like, stay away. Um, don't play the Ouija game. Yeah, no, like it's... Uh, so, you know, some sometimes it's, it's like advertised like right. as just like a board game or whatever, yeah. and uh, it's really dangerous. So um, we got to stay away from this, and we need to teach people to, to stay away from these things. So um, yeah, that that's all important. 
Um, the other thing you can talk about with satanic arts, which I might just have to save for another time, although maybe I can just maybe we'll just end up skipping the second kings. Is so this is what we I ended up talking about in adult catechesis the other week. Is um, what about things like yoga, right? So um, or things like or I guess this came up at the men's group too. Yeah, th- this has come up a lot recently. So. People are interested in this, so I'll do it. Again. I'll do the shtick again. Some of you might have already heard it, but um, when it comes to things like yoga, for instance, what, uh, or I'm trying to think of like some other examples, um, or like yeah, tai chi, med- some for- different forms of meditation. Um, what about these things that like, or even. Um, you know, like Halloween, right? Halloween is another good example, where you have things that, in some sense, come from not necessarily like occult backgrounds, but like pagan backgrounds, and then they get kind of mainstreamed into culture, and on the surface, like they don't look that bad, and the, they're not like there's obviously a difference between like if you have like tarot cards over here. Um, let my marker dry out again. If you got like tarot cards over here, right, um, on the spectrum of things, um, you know, and say like on this side of things, you have like Bible reading, okay, or something. Um, like obviously not spiritually, uh, I mean spiritual, but like obviously not dangerous, like actually very good, right? Um, somewhere, you know, like, and then you have things that are completely neutral, right? So say you had like, uh, you know, like running on a treadmill. Okay. Like this is, um, I mean, it is, I think in a sense that this sounds kind of silly, but in a sense that is spiritual because everything is the- theological, um, mind and body are connected. Your body is a temple for the Holy spirit. Right. So I think even exercise is theological, but, um, if you have kind of like, this spectrum, okay? You have things that are kind of like in this gray area here. Like, is it neutral? Is it dangerous, right? Uh, like, okay, so yoga is maybe one of the main examples I get asked about a lot. Like, um, what are like maybe like watching certain TV shows, like, um, or or watching horror movies or something like that, right? Like, what? Um, where do these things fall on the spectrum? So. I think uh, I'll just give a couple like principles for how to think about these things. Okay, so one principle is that Christians are have historically been able to Christianize pagan things. Okay, so take Christmas trees for example. Christmas trees have pagan roots. Um, I don't even know. I, I know it's like kind of European, like a European tradition. Um, but uh, Christmas trees are not like from the Bible. Obviously, there's no account of Christmas trees in the Bible. And they're, uh, they have some sort of pagan festival roots. I don't even remember exactly what they are. However, most Christians today use Christmas trees. And most 
Christians today when they use their Christmas trees uh, and put them up. Now, there are some – sometimes if you talk to people, enough people, um, and you ask them, do you use a Christmas tree? Did you grow up using a Christmas tree? Um, good friend of mine. Some some will say no. Not at Yeah, you don't? Okay, there you go. So uh, I have a friend who said he uses one, but they weren't allowed to growing up because – and he's a very faithful Christian, but he said, you know, my dad – just was not comfortable with it um, because it it's rooted in paganism or whatever. So uh, when Christian, but uh, with Christmas trees, right? I think this is something that obviously Christians have been able to Christianize, right? So we put them up in the church, and we um, the, there's a like for I don't know how long this has been going on, but I I know I've explained this before, I've said this before. But like there's an old tradition of now that uh, if you have a real Christmas tree in the church, then so that's like you know symbolizing the birth of Christ. And then uh, you'll take the, the wood of that tree um, after that tree dies and then form that into a rough-hewn cross to use on Good Friday, right? And so it's like the, the birth and the life of Christ in the green tree and then the death of Christ in the – and the dead tree, and it's a very nice symbolism and everything. And then you can think about the presents under the tree, which are connected to the wise man and to St. Nicholas, uh, you know, a Christian saint and everything. And Christians have been able to Christianize the Christmas tree into um, a pretty Christian practice, right? And and so you can also – so one principle is you can see how things can kind of like slide along the scale, right? Um depending on how they're used and, and who uses them and how they're taught and stuff that we don't even think of that. Like I said, I don't even remember what the pagan roots of the Christmas tree are. I just know a long time ago, Christmas trees used to not be Christian and now they are. And that's, um, and that's all good and fine. Right. And I don't really think there's any spiritual danger in using a Christmas tree. We put up a Christmas, we put up two Christmas trees at our house and one's an, one's an advent tree and one's a Christmas tree. And we have a whole, there's the Jesse tree, right? Which is again, using biblical imagery, um, connected to this idea of the tree, um, the tree of life, all this stuff, right? So um, that's all. That's so. That's one principle: is that we, it is possible to Christianize pagan things. Another principle is um, Christian freedom. Christian freedom. Uh, and um, that kind of goes along with uh, strong versus the weak brother, right? Um, when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians about meat sacrifice to idols, right? His main point is that some people have a weaker faith and some people have a stronger faith. And someone who is weak might see someone doing something – um, primarily outside the church, by the way, there's a um, that's a little bit different of a topic, but there's a distinction between strong and weak inside the church and, and outside the church. But outside the church, so someone might see someone doing something that um, has pagan roots, so has you know meat that is sacrificed to idols. If a weaker brother sees a stronger brother. Uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, he might be tempted uh, to eat it as well and 
for him commit idolatry, right? Uh, for him, because the weaker brother still believes that um, this meat is sacrificed to false gods, and he might say, "Oh, it is okay to to worship false gods, and uh, it is okay to 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 partake in this this paganism." Now, the the stronger brother says, in his own heart, in his own mind, he says. Um, there's no such thing as these false gods. These false gods are false, right? Uh, Paul just says the idols are just pieces of wood, right? Um, the idols that he's talking about in terms of the meat sacrificed idols. And so this meat is fine. Um, God has given us this meat to eat. I'm just gonna eat it. Doesn't matter, right? But for the sake of if for the sake of the weaker brother, I'm not going to uh, partake of it because I don't want them to fall into sin. So you can see in that that the distinction is that sometimes based on the conscience of someone, okay, so to go against your conscience is a sin. God gives us consciences to tell us uh, his law to tell us what's right, right and wrong. Now, because some people, and this is something we've been talking about some on Wednesday nights, is that consciences are malleable. Uh, consciences um, can be hardened. Consciences can be strengthened. Consciences can be weak. Um, our, our consciences can change based on how well we know the word of God and based on um, like how carefully we examine things, right? So, but no matter what, to, to, to willfully go against your conscience is sin, right? To willfully say, I think this thing is wrong to do, but I'm going to do it anyway, that's sinful. And so there um, – okay, and then the Christian freedom connects to this in this way, that our what, – what is our Christian freedom? It means we're no longer judged by the law. We don't have to – our good works don't get us into heaven, right? We don't have to uphold the, the uh, law in every single aspect um, because we are not judged by the law. We're judged by the gospel. Um, and so therefore uh, we have – Freedom to live our lives to God, right? Not to, we don't have freedom to sin, but we have freedom to uh, to live our lives to God um, and to act according to our conscience. Okay, so for certain people, that what I'm leading up to is this: depending on how strong or weak someone's knowledge of the Word of God is, depending on how strong or weak someone's conscience is, depending on how strong or weak someone's faith is, certain things might be sin for some people and not be sin for others, right? Some people can can partake in things. So I think like yoga would be an example of this is in this kind of gray area that someone might be able to go to a yoga class and they're not at all tempted to participate in any kind of Eastern religion. Um, they're just there to stretch um, and uh, to, you know, get a little bit of sweat to take care of their bodies or whatever, right? Um, and they're not at all tempted in any way. They don't. They don't think about it. Uh, it and in fact, if anything, they they might say like the Lord's Prayer while they're doing it, right? Okay. Someone who's very like strong and comfortable in this um, might might do something. Might have that. Other people might say like say I just really am not comfortable with it because. I know it has very uh, strong roots to Eastern religions, and those really haven't 
had the time and history to be completely separated from that and i'm gonna just do some normal stretching i'm not gonna go to, i'm not i'm not i don't want anything to do with yoga okay um and so you can see how different people have different um ways in their souls of, of dealing with topics like this right and so uh that's something we need to um just be aware of is that just because something bothers us it might not bother someone else and so a couple couple things I'd say about that is one um, we don't like we should try and be strong in our consciousness and our faith and stuff of course but we don't need to like force the issue either right so if something bothers you that's fine right like you don't have to like be like oh I'm stronger than this I'm gonna get over this I'm gonna do it anyway right um, that would be a dangerous thing for your conscience right you don't want to Say, oh well, well, uh, pastor said that some people don't sin when they do yoga, and so I'm gonna get, I'm I'm gonna get over it. I'm gonna do it anyway, even though I don't think that's right. <laughs> right? Like, okay, we we don't want to um, necessarily try and force the issue. Um, God has given us our consciences for for a reason, and and we should we should respect our consciences. The other thing um, about that is that again remember what paul says about the strong as they relate to the weak is that if um we need to be careful if some if if something doesn't bother our consciences like like this and if if we do have stronger consciences um we need to be careful not to offend the weak either right uh we need to be careful that just because something is okay with us that we're not going out and and uh you know, offending the weak by partaking in it when we know that it bothers other people, right? So Paul calls Christians to give things up for other people, right? Um, and so, so that they, so that they're not tempted to fall into into sin. And uh, so that that's something to think about as as well. Okay. Um, but yeah, all of that. Uh, falls into this category of, to bring it back, the second commandment of using God's name rightly, of um, not using satanic arts, lying or deceiving upon by his name, but calling upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and, and give thanks. That no matter what we want, we do, we want it to be to the, to the glory of God, to the name that he has put on us in our baptism. And... Uh, yeah, that involves us kind of working through some of these these things. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? Does that all track? Does it make sense? Okay. Well, I apologize for turning this into a topical Bible study instead of the Bible study Bible study. Um, so it's just got a kind of a, a one-off week, um, but that's fine. These things are important to talk about. So. That's right. You know, I did so for men's group. For men's group, I did a uh, ask pastor anything, and that that went great. I loved it. Um, I don't know about the guys that were there, but like, I thought that was uh, really beneficial because got to talk about a lot of fun stuff. So I'm probably gonna do that again this month. All right. Any uh, other questions, comments? We can close in the word of prayer. All right, dear heavenly Father, we thank and praise you. Um, we give praise to your name, and we pray that you would. Help us 
to call upon your name, to pray praise and give thanks in every circumstance. Pray that you would keep us from the evil one and from the demons. We pray that you would give us knowledge and discernment and wisdom as we seek to live our lives according to your name. Uh, We pray that you would help us to know your grace alone, your word alone, and and that we would know you by faith alone. We pray that you would bless our worship today in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would be with us in all that we do, say, and think. We pray all this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.